Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. Today I want to make some recommendations. I also want to talk about Hathor and the Golden Calf incident at Sinai, which I hope will shed some new light on that uh, that uh, crazy situation there. And then also I wanted to talk about uh, Matthew 24, 9 through 14, as it relates to how we can know uh, when the end times start, as I have I think I've pretty much settled on a project that has to do with that, and I'll talk about that once we get there. But first, I wanted to make a few recommendations. The first is a book. It's a pretty famous Christian book, so you've probably heard of it. My wife has been trying to get me to read it forever. It's Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. I listened to it on Audible. There is uh, one with more, there's two versions of it on Audible. I listened to the one with more reviews uh, narrated by Wanda McCadden. And I just, I can't recommend it enough. It's life changing. It will change your life. It will make you a better Christian. It will give you more perspective on everything that's coming. And the long and the short of it is that uh, Corey Ten Boom and her, her family were part of the underground, I believe in Holland, uh, you know, when the Nazi occupation happened and they were uh, rounding up all the Jews, they were for years uh, sort of the central part in Holland of the underground, of, of hiding the Jews and things like that. Um, but later she gets taken to a prison and then later concentration camps. And it is just a story of God and what God does in these troubled times. And to me, it just reiterates this important idea that the Bible and Christianity was written for people in concentration camps and the like. And then I think that one of the reasons we don't see God working in the same way that he has worked in the book of Acts and all throughout the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter, is because we don't really need him. We write checks for things like that. And that is a rare thing, this last 150 or so years where everything has just been hunky-dory and there's no uh, um, you know, huge wars or, or all these different things. And that's only in certain parts of the world too. My point is that if things get really rough again and we're in these extreme dire straits and you lose everything, take heart because this that's the consolation prize is that finally you can live the Christian life the way it was designed to be lived and with God by your side in a real way, building your faith, glorifying himself. It's the reason why people that come out of these extreme situations talk about them as if they were the greatest times in their life and it's just hard to understand how that can be until you read the experiences of the people that have that have done this and seen God in those situations. So I highly recommend The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom. You will not be disappointed. I have another recommendation of some media that will springboard into the first thing I want to talk about today. Um, it's a YouTube channel called Holy Land Sight. It is a guy named Dr. Todd M. Fink. And basically, he just does these presentations, these good video presentations of, uh, I guess ostensibly it's Israel tours, but the thing that I like on his channel is these sort of archaeological stuff. So these are things like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the real site, the Noah's Ark documentary, the Exodus route, Red Sea crossing, uh, Mount Sinai discoveries, all these kinds of things, ancient Jericho and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, other things, uh, Bethlehem, the, the valley where um, uh, uh, 
uh, David slays Goliath and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've been interested with this stuff for a while. My, the early days of YouTube, I remember, you know, Ron Wyatt. And Ron Wyatt had his problems or whatever. But, man, that guy, that guy got a lot more right than he got wrong, it seems. But one of the reasons I like this site is that it's sort of the updated version. So the, a lot of stuff has happened since those early days of YouTube. People have gone back and they've done you know, all kinds of surveys of these sites and more information has come to light. And it's ridiculous how obvious this is, you know, Noah's Ark is sitting up there and, uh, there's no, the refu the refutations of some of this stuff, like the Exodus route and the, and Sodom and Gomorrah, it's just obvious. It's just, it's a picture of how unbelievably strong the Christian argument is. The truth is just earth shattering. Truth is just on YouTube from a guy that has, you know, well, looking at the numbers, they've got 1 million views. It's not bad for a Christian uh, media. But um, my point is, I think this stuff is irrefutable. And I was just having such a good time reviewing the, the latest stuff. I liked him, too, because he was, to a certain extent, going over the um, sort of secular refutations of you know these things. It's always helpful, in my opinion, to hear the other side of the story presented as uh, honestly as possible. And I think that he does a good job of that. Um, and anyway, so I recommend that in that sense that if you haven't sort of familiarized yourself with these new archaeological situations or whatever, go to Holy Land site. It's just one word, Holy Land site on YouTube. Subscribe to that guy's channel and uh, go to his videos, sort by popular or whatever, and you'll see a lot of the particular ones that I'm interested in. But what I wanted to talk about in relationship to that is while watching the Sinai Red Sea crossing um, video of his, and it was, he's got a lot of graphs and 3D renderings of the area. And so, you know, I was really felt like I was there with them, you know, in all these different passages through the wilderness and you could just see it there in 3D and you're like, oh, of course, well, that makes sense. They would have to camp there and all this stuff. And I just was drawn into the story more than I have been in the past. And in doing so, I looked at this golden calf situation in a totally different light. One that honestly was a little bit scary because I was like, I mean, I could have been in danger if I was in that group of, of doing the Hathor party. And normally I look at that story as like, just why is it even there? Because it's so obvious. Why would they make a golden calf? They had just been through the parting of the Red Sea and the splitting of the rock of Horeb and manna in the wilderness and all these miraculous things. And Moses is taking a little bit longer than normal and they just go ahead and get Aaron to make a golden calf. And what's the deal with him making the golden calf and out pop this calf. Even that has interesting implications. So the, the, the broad view here is that it's important to know that this was almost certainly the worship of a Egyptian God uh, named Hathor. She is represented as a cow uh, in a cow form, or she can be represented as a woman with horns and typically the solar disk of Ra. And I'll get into that. I went through sort of a, a rabbit trail of Hathor study to, to learn more about this. But I think it's important to back up a little further to where they were before they even left Egypt. And so you know the story that Joseph... Uh, and his family and Jacob, they come down to Egypt after the famine and it's all a big reunion. And then we close that story and I don't know, what is it, 300, 400 years? A long time passes before we open up the next scene with Moses and 
a people entirely enslaved, it appears. I mean, that in itself is kind of a question. Like, what happened to Joseph being the second in Egypt and Goshen being given to him and the area of Egypt by the, the, the best really part of Egypt? And all of a sudden, we open up scene, scene two and everybody's enslaved and everybody seems to have forgotten everything of value about their religion. I think that that is in itself one of a picture of Satan's really first attempt at um, attacking the Jews. I mean, he, at this point, he recognizes that the uh, the seed of the woman is gonna come through the Jews. He knows that from Genesis 3, 15. So his attack on them is in between that time. And he apparently sort of takes all the life out of them. I mean, almost completely. They don't have any fight left in them. They become these sort of, and, and what I'm trying to say here is that we, we see this in part because of how their interactions with Moses, they just want to be back in Egypt. They don't even care about this. Even when they're, you know, seeing miraculous signs, they're still like, let us just go back to Egypt. They are totally integrated to Egyptian society. That's what I want to say here. There's no evidence that they weren't. There's no evidence that they, they didn't have a law to yet. I mean, that was with Moses later on at Sinai. So they didn't have any of that. They had maybe, I would assume, some very strong, uh, uh, stories and maybe even some writings and things like that about their history with, you know, Jacob and, 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 and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and that kind of thing, but it was minimal, right? And so anyway, all that to say, these people were beaten down by Satan. All, all knowledge, you know, of this, or a lot of the knowledge was apparently uh, not available and they had integrated into Egyptian society. And what I want to mention here is that Egyptian society was as we know, really God-based, you know, gods and goddesses everywhere. And that's, you know, it's hard for us to understand what that even means or what that looks like. But I think one of the ways that it helps us to, to feel it more is through the festivals. There were something like seven major festivals in Egypt. And these are holidays. I mean, these are hard times and feast days were like the thing to look forward to at periodic times of the year that made it all not so bad. And you have to understand that looking forward to these holidays and of these seven that, that are listed in this thing that I saw, I, I'm sure that there were two or three of the big ones. You know, the Christmas of the uh, of the holiday list is, is more important, or the New Year's, if you will. And one of those big ones was the worship of Hathor. And Hathor, as I mentioned, is uh, depicted as a, a cow. This is particularly to do with uh, uh, fertility and things like that. But she was uh, an interesting god in that goddess, I suppose, in that she not only could be this cow figure, but she was also had the solar disk of Ra. There's this sort of Egyptian idea of the eye, which uh, she was a part of, in which she kind of becomes a little bit of a trinity in a sense, that because she's often pictured with the solar disk of Ra as a part of her, uh, it just means that Ra is with her, and, and there's this sort of idea that through the course of time, she gives birth to Horus, which uh, is a sort of self-perpetuating thing. So in a way, though it's Hathor, an image of Hathor, it's often understood to be kind of multiple gods, the, the main trinity of gods. But the worship of Hathor was very... Think of it like Dionysus or something. I mean, she it was all about um, the sensory pleasures of life, things like drinking and dancing and playing music and eating and feasting and all these things. It was a party and it was a big deal for Egyptians. Talk about blowing off some steam. Hathor day was the best day probably in the Egyptian life. And to understand that that was something that they 
they knew and were excited about. And we know this. I mean, we see this all throughout the subsequent things. Uh, the, the, the Hathor images were seen at Sinai throughout this whole desert situation. We know they were worshiping Hathor, which was definitely available to worship at this proto-Egyptian sort of time. It was very early in the Egyptian world, even then, 300 or so years after uh, Joseph. But um, but Hathor worship was the big one uh, then. Later on, it sort of gets, of course, expanded and tons and uh, tons of other gods. But uh, So that's the main background I wanted to give. Before I get into the text of this incident, which has a lot of uh, clues to show us that we're on the right track with this idea, I wanted to do one more sort of psychological possible backstory here. So imagine these people who have been beat down, who really didn't ever want to leave Egypt, but Moses shows up, all this whirlwind of events happen with Pharaoh and the rest of it, the Red Sea, and they're, they're really on the run for this first few weeks between uh, getting out of Egypt and getting to Sinai. Remember, they're in the desert for 40 years, but this first few weeks is the, they don't have anything, they don't have, they don't have a backup, they don't have, know where water is, they don't, they don't, they don't, <laughs> they're not prepared for this. And so that first few weeks is where all these huge miracles happens, water out of rocks and manna from heaven and all these other things are happening. It's a really big deal. And it, it, it's not until they get to Sinai where they camp for a year. So once they find, Sinai is this huge place, it's lots of room, lots of water, it's really the perfect place for them to really say, okay, let's settle down here, let's think about what's going on. So Sinai is sort of the first stopping place. So there, it was a whirlwind of activity before they got there, they're in the middle of the wilderness, they don't know what's going on. And, and remember, these are people that didn't have a lot of knowledge about anything. It's, they were have been beat down for all this time. So I can imagine these, so they see, you know, the frogs and the plagues of Egypt and they're, they're, they're on this first sort of leg of the journey and they're, they're in the peninsula and whatnot. And they're probably asking Moses and other people, you know, about theology. So, okay, let me get this straight. The gods that we were worshiping in Egypt, they're all like false gods and not real. And Moses is like, yes, yes, that's correct. They are false gods. It's totally nonsense. And um, they're like, okay, 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 all right. But uh, what about the festivals, you know? And I think that that is, was probably a sticking point. And it's interesting that God actually gives them festivals, right? It, he's gonna institute festivals at Sinai, new festivals, new feasts, new times to look forward to. And I actually think that this may have been some kind of deep psychological thing. Moses, I don't think knew yet that there would be festivals right? He had not got any of that information from Sinai. So there's this time in the wilderness where he's explaining to them that their old gods are nonsense. Well, okay, okay, okay. So this new God is obviously very powerful. So that's, we're trading, you know, we're trading up in terms of gods. How does this new God feel about the festivals of, you know, like Hathor Day or whatever? And, you know, Moses probably was like, I mean, probably not, you know? So they knew that it was a bad idea. They couldn't do their Hathor worship anymore. No more Christmas. Christmas was not going to happen. Don't pay attention to December 25th anymore. So I, I think that's an important thing to plug into your thought process here. So, so let's get into a little bit of the text. Exodus 32 says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The first thing I think is important here is that the reason ostensibly that they tell Aaron that they need new gods is because they don't know what has become of Moses. And I see this as them having convinced themselves that Moses had died, which is probably, I'm guessing, not a unreasonable conclusion because of the nature of the mountain that Moses went up on, which was, we see in other places, making huge thundering noises. What if like he'd been up there for like a week and all of a sudden they hear this huge crack, you know, with like, oh, is that Moses? Did he die? You know, and the thing was on fire. I mean, people were scared of the mountain. Scared, they were just scared to death of the mountain. So it wasn't an unreasonable conclusion. And I suspect there was also somebody in their midst that was like, hey, Moses has died, you know, and convinced people that, that, that he had. And I'm sure that just infected them all because from a psychological perspective, they had just been through all this thing. This one guy was the pivot point to this whole thing. I mean, if that guy was gone, then they're on their own. If that guy was was gone, then somebody needs to come up with a different plan. And, you know, the, the, the floodgates are open for, well, what now and which one of us are going to lead us? So it's a whole different dynamic if Moses dies. But I also think that they're taking this as a license to do what is burning in their heart to do, which is to sin, to go back to the sin of their old ways, which they're taking this as an excuse to do that. And they're doing it in a religious way, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I think that that's the main thing. I think there's parallels to this when people get burned by something in, you know, the local church or something, maybe the pastor falls or somebody in leadership does something wrong or deceptive. And the person who maybe doesn't even need much of an excuse to go back to a life of sin clings to that uh, wrong as their justified reason to go back to sin. Does that make sense? So I see them seeing the death of Moses as, hey, look, well, it just proves something. It proves it wasn't, you know, something clearly has happened here. All these miracles need to be explained and all that stuff, but maybe his way wasn't the way. So let's go back to a way that also gives us the opportunity to sin. A few more things to point out from this section is the gold aspect of the calf. So they made it with gold, which was a typical thing that you make uh, these gods of. It's They found the altar for Hathor in the base of Sinai in, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's got Hathor cows on it. It's basically an, a Hathor uh, altar and everybody knows it. I mean, the mainstream archaeology says, okay, yeah, Hathor worship was primarily in the in Egypt, but there is some stuff out in the middle of the desert in the Sinai that has Hathor worship and their best explanation for it is that maybe some seasonal miners or something, uh, uh, you know, erected a, a, a temple to Hathor out there in the, in the wilderness in front of a burnt mountain. Uh, but anyway, so... The, uh, the main idea here is that they would put the thing on top of this huge altar. It was really, really tall. So people, so a million people standing around could see it. And the way that it would, the, the sun, it was meant for the sun to hit the gold. And when the sun hits the gold, you know, the sun is raw in their, in their worship. So there's all this sort of religious ecstasy that happens in the, in the shining of the sun and the gold. And it's all on this big pedestal or whatever. Just some color there. The main thing I wanted to talk about is the plural nature of the gods, even though it is just one calf. So when they ask Aaron about it, they said, make us gods. 
gods. And uh, when Aaron presents it to him, he says, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The thing there is that Hathor worship if you can see this primarily when I mean, you can see Hathor uh, uh, depicted as a cow, but she's also, uh, and even when she is a cow, sometimes you will have the solar disc of Ra between her or horns. And there's this really complicated relationship of Hathor and Ra and the eye of all this stuff. It's really technical, but the basic idea is that, that at least two gods are depicted in most Hathor uh, iconography because you have either the cow or the the the, the head of, of Hathor and you have the solar disk of Ra and it really probably is three because Horus is probably in there somewhere in the process of being sort of uh, birthed and rebirthed and a whole thing that's really complicated but the bottom line is that one golden calf can be gods in the theology at that time the final point I'll make on this section is really the worst of this. When Aaron says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is transferring all the glory that should be to God to Hathor and Ra. And it is, I see this as kind of a picture of the end times in a way, because I, I believe that the Antichrist will uh, present himself as the Messiah uh, to the Jews and to the world, really. And he'll he'll have appear to have fulfilled a lot of the things that were supposed to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled by Jesus in his uh, second coming. But, but he will also not have quite fulfilled a lot. And there's going to be a lot of theology that the false prophet and stuff are going to have to come up with in order to uh, uh, sweep away a lot of good theology. Like the rapture really actually isn't going to happen. And Jesus in the first century, he really wasn't, or I don't know exactly what the Antichrist is going to say about Jesus in the first century, whether he is another return of him or uh, he wasn't really, he was just a nobody, but it's going to be some blasphemous trying to incorporate and transfer that to this false theology. And so I see this as a really big problem, uh, to say the least, when he says, these are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, because he's now, they're coming up with a totally different story. Moses, they believe now is dead. So what do we make of this thing that has just happened? And they're just coming up with something else. Actually, it was Ra that did all that stuff. Okay, so bad, bad stuff. And then the next verse, verse five, which says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and uh, brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So first of all, I don't know how long it takes M Moses to make this calf, but they don't party that day. They say, okay, here's the calf. Tomorrow, everybody get ready. We're going to have a day of feast. So it's a feast day and it's to Hathor. And it's obviously going to be the typical Hathor festival feast day. They're going to, they've instituted Christmas again. And it's a big party for everybody because it, I think it's important to think of these people as very stressed out too, because they have been through a lot in the last few weeks. And I don't know, again, there's something about him declaring a feast day tomorrow, and it's just going to be all back to normal. We're going to get to do the, the greatest fun thing that we've all experienced in our lives. The, the thing that we treasure the most is this drunken sort of feast day and party and enjoying life and all this kind of stuff. It's hard to even imagine what that would have been like to an ancient people who were just so destitute in most of their lives. 
So I think it's important to realize that. But more to the point, I think that the feast that they describe, the drinking particularly, is a total dead giveaway for Hathor worship. And it says to rose up to play, and I haven't really looked into that, uh, but the dancing and the sexual aspect of it too was a big sin. And you know, you could expect probably a lot of the men in the group to say, hey, let's let's do one of those Hathor days. You know, what what a what a snare that probably was to the men, and I'm sure the women too. And because of the uh, sensual and sexual nature of it, I, I didn't actually see in the study of Hathor, it say that like orgies or, or whatever was a part of it, but it certainly makes the point of sensuality. It, 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 it makes that a very big deal in describing this, but I couldn't find any exact uh, uh, saying that it was, it was also a big orgy party. It may, it may have been, and maybe they did that as well, but, um, but it, it was at least sensual. It was drunkenness. It was, uh, it was plain. But the big problem again is this idea that Moses says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. To the Lord, this golden calf, this Hathor, uh, Ra, they've basically given the glory of all of that stuff to their old gods. Now they've just come up with a new, by the way, Ra does all this cool stuff with parting the Red Sea and Ra gave us water from the Horeb rock and Ra and, and Hathor did all this other stuff. So they're just coming up with a brand new thing, stealing the glory of God and giving it to some false idol. So I'm going to skip a number of verses and go all the way to Moses confronting Aaron about this. And he says, what did this people do to you that have you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. If you've ever listened to a sermon on this, you might have heard the preacher make a, a bit of a joke about this, you know, that that Aaron was trying to act like, hey, I didn't really even do it. I just, you know, out came this calf. And it's a funny thing. And maybe that is probably what Aaron was doing to some extent. It's also interesting in the research that I was doing on this that it was a really important part of Egyptian um, icon making, uh, idol making, that the gods were actually the ones who make all the idols. That yes, the human hands were making them, but gods would come down in that process and they would actually uh, be the ones who really make the idol. It was sort of a way to, you know, make it feel more interesting, I think, to have this very clear theology. And I, I say it like that because it's apparently all over Egypt when talking about the making of idols, that it was the gods who make them. And it was just a a thing that they said basically, but sort of everybody knew that you sort of made them. So Aaron saying, and out came this calf was in keeping with the Egyptian and I'm sure other cultures idea that idols were actually not made by man, but instead by gods. And I think it may be one of the reasons that God points out that here in, in subsequent uh, chapters and really the rest of the Bible, when he talks about idol worship, he often says things like, made with human hands, or you think that these things that you make with your hands are, you know, equal to me and these things. So it's almost a dig at the lie that they all told themselves, which was that gods really showed up and made this idol, even though it was my hands that made it, it was really the gods that make it. So it was pointing out the, the folly of that uh, uh, doctrine. That's really all I had on this Hathor golden calf thing. I just feel like putting it in the context and understanding their position, it really helps, A, to know that the Bible really is just 
just completely true in everything that it's saying, but it also helps with the psychology and being a little bit more humble, I think, and, and reading some of the stuff that the, um, the, the Israelites were, were doing and thinking it in context that, hey, they aren't really that much different than us, as I certainly have been guilty of thinking of them as just, just completely nonsensically doing these things that do not benefit them and they should know better in. But I think that if anybody can recognize in their own life that one of the, we are very skilled at forgetting the obvious things that God does for us in our lives. I don't know about you, but I've seen God do miraculous things in my life and it is so hard to dwell on them and remember them and think of them. It's almost like there is just this force that is in my uh, flesh that is actively trying to forget the great things that God has done and attribute it, attribute them to myself or accident or whatever. And uh, so it's definitely a picture of that. And uh, okay, so let's move on to the next thing. The next thing I wanted to talk about is a project that I want to devote some time to, which is a film and probably a book slash at least script called tentatively, The End Is Not Yet, A Guide for Watchmen, in which I get to talk about a lot of different subjects and do some re new research on things that I really want to do research on and show that we were commanded very specifically to watch for signs, signs that as far as I know, nobody is watching for. In fact, the I mean, you can Google what are the, are we in the end times and watch every major evangelical say things that are transparently false, mostly to do with the birth pains and some wishy-washy theories about 1967 or 48 or how the birth pains started when Jesus ascended or alternatively when the Jews got the land back in 1948. Before I get into this idea of really trying to figure out what specifically are we told to watch for, I need to interact a little bit with some of criti some critiques from people that I respect that differ from, uh, for example, the view that I have that the seals in Revelation 6 directly parallel the birth pains. And that's important because if that's true, which they both culminate in the sign of the day of the Lord, obviously, the sun, moon, and star sign, they have the famines and the pestilence and the wars and the rumors of wars. It's, it's uh, if you understand that, and it's not a niche theory, John MacArthur believes it, for example, and he's not pre-wrath or anything. Uh, but my point is that if that's true, then the birth pangs just, they, they're not, they are part of the 70th week of Daniel. You don't get to say they've been occurring through all of human history, or as some people say, uh, from the ascension of Christ, or as other people say, from 1948 or 1967. That theory, if you listen to basically every evangelical, just type it into YouTube or Google or anything else, are we in the end times? They're going to be very wishy-washy about it, and they're going to make some kind of half-hearted allusion to the birth pains. That's that's the whole thing. And then they go off on whatever it is that they're personally mad about. You know, the gays or whatever, you know, they'll go into their own little sidebar that is not proof of anything. It's just what they think is bad. And then to that, I would say, you know, there's been a lot of bad in the history of the world. I mean, the Moloch worship was worse back then. And so was, uh, anyway... Um, my point is I need to interact with some of the criticisms and there has been one criticism in particular of the birth pangs parallel theory. I mostly know of it, um, through the orange mailman blog, Darren there, uh, has made allusions to the fact that he believes it. And basically the idea is that, 
um, that, that while he believes entirely in the sixth seal of rapture and that the, the sun, moon, and star sign is a herald of the day of the Lord in Revelation 6, he doesn't see, for example, the first few seals as being parallel uh, to the, the uh, uh, birth pains and the birth pains in the traditional view, or I say traditional view, the, the preacher view, as, that they're occurring all throughout history or whatever variation of that. And while he is a little light on the details on his blog, I have seen that it mostly comes from a guy called Ron Wallace at a, uh, a website called BibleFragrances.com. Actually, I don't know what came first, Darren or Ron Wallace, but they have a lot of parallels there and usually a lot of the same language. So I'm assuming that they are related in some way. So I got went through all his stuff and tried to pick out all the main arguments that were actual arguments to, to, to try to see to test myself, you know, to see if this is true or not. And it has all the hallmarks, in my opinion, of a bad argument. Most of it is stuff like the parallels aren't really parallels because maybe one that maybe they both one mentions famines, but one only mentions that wheat was really expensive and that barley was expensive. And that's not the same thing. That's talking about economics, not necessarily famine. It's like, I mean, really, that's a, that's not a good argument. It's mostly like the parallels aren't parallels because they don't say exactly the same thing. And give maybe more details in one than the other. That's a, the huge crux of the argument there. But I, after analyzing the argument, I, I really think it comes down to one thing, which is Matthew 9 through 14. I'll start reading in verse 3, and we'll go all the way through 14. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So those things, first of all, are all explicitly not signs. It's important that Jesus wants us to know for some reason that these specific things, a false Christ showing up, wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes, etc., they are not the signs that they were asking about. They are not the signs of the end times. It's important that he makes that distinction. And I would submit that's exactly the reverse of everything that uh, every evangelical does when asked, are we in the end times? They'll say yes, because of these signs, which is exactly reverse of what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. Now, starting off in verse nine, this is the important uh, section here. Then they will deliver you up to tri tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the way I interpret this section verses 9 through 14 in Matthew 24 is that it's essentially a short version of the answer to their question. He ends with the words, and then the end will come. This is a quick way to say, these are the events that will happen. And then in the next verse, in verse 15, he begins expanding on that, specifically the abomination of desolation, which was one of the events that he just described. That is to say, people delivering you up to tribulation and being put to death, are going to be hated by all nations for your namesake. Items that in parallel passages are obviously a part 
of the abomination of desolation. In fact, the very words that Jesus mentions um, draws us to the exact same thing from Daniel, which is that after the abomination of desolation at the midpoint, uh, people will, uh, a time of trouble such as never been since the nation was uh, uh, until that time, etc. It even uses the same language here. So clearly we're supposed to be, as Jesus says in this exact same passage, in the next passage, let the reader understand. The one Daniel standing in the holy place, you know what I'm talking about, the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. So he's obviously wanting us to connect those passages. But my point is that what, what the counter argument to this is, is that 9 through 14 is not a uh, the whole story and then he begins to give you more information about the story he just said. And instead, they would argue that 9 through 14 is a different set of events that chronologically take place before the abomination of desolation, based, as far as I can tell, entirely on the fact that it appears before verse 15, which talks about the abomination of desolation. So therefore, they say these are a whole set of events that we now need to come up with reasons for why they look exactly like the other things that happen uh, in the, after the abomination of desolation, but are separate events that must occur chronologically because they appear chronologically before this section in uh, the book of Matthew. And I would say that the, the text itself has lots of clues that the former interpretation is correct. Uh, I, as I think I've already mentioned, the, the two all night, it ends with the idea in verse 14, then the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony unto, unto all the nations, and then the end will come. The end will come. So the end has happened. And according to them, it really hasn't happened because in verse 15, that's when the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let, and it goes on to say, that the reason they need to flee is because this great persecution, you're going to be hated for all nations for my namesake, and you'll, many will fall away. All these items that are obviously a part of the great tribulation, and at, which is in itself a result of the abomination of desolation. To me, this is the most transparently obvious thing, but it is frustrating that I do think a lot of people that have reasons or some other reasons, and th in this case, the main reason is in my opinion, a lot of people want the birth pains to be something that they, especially in the pre-trib world, because if they don't have the birth pains to say, hey, we are in the end times and that flood or that earthquake I just saw or that um, trans person or that anything bad, that's a sign of the end times uh, because, especially in the pre-trib world, if they don't have that to talk about, then the next thing they would have to say is like the actual signs that we're told to watch for, which is, Number one, the abomination of desolation, and number two, the celestial disturbance sign. If you read this section and what we're told, commanded to watch for, entire an entire chapter of parables showing us the perils of not watching are then written about two basic signs. One is the abomination of desolation, and number two is the celestial disturbance sign. Both things in the pre-trib world are not things that they actually think that they'll see because they believe that they're going to be raptured before the 70th week of Daniel. Therefore, there is absolutely no reason to have a radio show or a podcast or a book or anything about the end times from their perspective because there is nothing for them to talk about. But birth pangs, it's a wide open totally unruly thing that the rules don't even exist. You can just say anything that is weird is a, is a sign of the end times. You don't have to talk about the anything. You don't have to talk about 10 Kings or temples or anything that the Bible says. You can just go off on whatever it is that's bothering you personally. And that is, I think that the, the, the thing that not necessarily the people I'm talking about that I'm specifically refuting, but particularly pre-tribbers in the modern state of prophecy. I think that, um, 
in good faith, a lot of the people in the pre-wrath that, that, that believe this, as far as I can tell, it's just 9 through 14. It, this is the question that needs to be asked, and really a paper needs to be written on this section, because I think that there's a, a, an abundance of ways to prove it. And when I do the actual work on this, again, I'm sorry for this is sort of me shooting from the hip with like literally just thinking of this last night and doing a very modicum amount of research, but I'm sure there are lots of different things that you can show that 9 through 14 is the short version of what now gets expanded upon. And I think you could say things like the gospel of the kingdom being preached, that that occurs as, you know, we could look at when the angel pr uh, 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 preaches the gospel, that must occur not before the abomination of desolation. Clearly, the idea that the end will come in verse 14 can't be before the abomination of desolation because the abomination of desolation is the most talked about thing. <coughs> I would also say that this does naturally springboard into what is the birth pains then? And how can you have wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff and false Christ in that first half of the three and a half years? And that's where the exciting part happens because I think that Daniel 11, 40 through 45 in context is obviously before the three and a half year period and must be uh, it starts with that covenant that we know begins at the uh, seven-year mark. Also, I should say there is a lot of presupposition on the part of people like the Ron Wallace or the, the biblical fragrances guy who sort of spearheaded this uh, uh, theory that there was no parallels between uh, Revelation 6 and, and uh, Matthew 24. It is a presupposition that the Antichrist is a complete, there's just nothing but peace that first three and a half years. And it doesn't even talk about anything in that first three and a half years because it's so peaceful. So the idea that there's wars and rumors of wars in the first half of the three and a half year period is so nonsensical as, as to not be believed, which is to me a massive miscalculation and a complete disregarding of the context of Daniel 11, which through verse 36 says it's going to be a bunch of wars right before the midpoint, which starts in 12.1. In fact, as I've said before, I think the concept of the rumors of wars, which is a really odd phrase that is extremely rare in the New Testament. In fact, you have to go back to the, the Septuagint to find its use in the Old Testament, where it's also a rare word used in the context of Daniel 11 to describe the rumors of wars that the Antichrist noticed in the East to go uh, wipe them out right before the midpoint happens, which again, it's chronologically linked to 1145 to Daniel 12.1. So we know those wars happen literally just before the midpoint midpoint. So this presupposition that, well, we know there's no wars in the first three and a half years is a, I don't even know what they're basing that off of. I mean, how Lindsay is my best guess, but the, 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 there is no biblical reason. In fact, there's explicit reason to see it otherwise. So there's a lot going on there. And I don't know for, for me, mostly I probably in the, in the actual thing that I'm doing, I won't actually bring this up because it is sort of an eternal argument. I'm just mostly doing it for my own peace of mind to make sure that I had my ducks in a row with this important uh, uh, critique of something that I'm going to be talking about prominently, namely the parallels between Revelation 6 and the Olivet Discourse, or rather the birth pains uh, in the Olivet Discourse, and to make sure I wasn't off base and needed to recalibrate and rechange my position before I get into this, because that would sort of defeat the whole purpose of a thing called but the end is not yet or whatever. And I should say that this is distinct and different from a lot of what people will say with, you know, pointing to first John or something and saying that, that the end times or how they say the last days have already been upon us. And they have, you know, in the first century, they were talking about the last days are here. So yes, in one sense, and that's kind of how you define what do we mean when we say the last days versus what were the disciples asking for? You know, when they said, when will these signs be? 
And Jesus gives them at least something pointing to that last seven year period, which I think is interesting in and of itself, because he says, Daniel, the prophet, he talks about the midpoint and that, that necessitates a, a pretty serious understanding of Daniel 9, 27. I think that anybody that comes to the 70 weeks prophecy honestly and without any axes to grind will understand that this is talking about a 69 week period of seven years that happens beforehand. And we actually know that that was more or less fulfilled when it was. And then this gap of time and then this last seven year period floating out in the middle of nowhere, that seven year period, which is the necessary outcome of a, of an honest interpretation of Daniel 9:27, in my opinion, this, this someday future starting of the seven years to complete what the 70 week prophecy is to bring an end of sin to basically uh, fulfill all the promises to Israel um, in a way that was prophesied uh, that that is the end times. The start, the question, essentially the way that Jesus, in, in other words, the way that Jesus seems to answer their question is to discuss when that seven year period begins. And he does so with the birth pains and makes an explicit thing, if, if I'm reading this right, and I think that I am, to say the first half of this thing is not the end times. And you really, really, really need to know that it's not. And it's going to look like it is. And there's going to be false Christ, but you can't believe it. It's important for you to know that that's not the end times. The actual end times is when a guy sits in the temple declaring himself to be God. And it's not an accident that that was Paul's entire thing in 2 Thessalonians 2. These people thought the day of the Lord had started and his argument against him is, um, have you seen a guy sitting in the temple? Do you not remember that that's the thing that we're supposed to watch for? So it's like, and I also want to say that it's important that we have very distinct things that you can't fake as our signs, because the whole point of being taught to be very careful not to believe that the first three and a half year things are the signs is because we're going to be in a deception where that's the goal to get us to believe that that first three and a half years is the establishment of the kingdom of God through a false Messiah with a false Elijah fulfilling all the prophecies, prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus had not fulfilled. I don't know the blasphemous way that him and the false prophet will sell this, but it will be a little, just like he always does, a lot of truth and a little bit of lies and the lies are going to be poison. And the whole point is we need sure signs to watch for because if in that, because if we don't, we're going to be deceived by capitalizing on our very nature, which is to demand that the end times be occurring, which is the whole problem right now is that I honestly think it's a pride thing that we, and the history of the church is replete with us always twisting scripture to make the newspaper are in times. And it's such a thirst that we have that we'll be willing to throw everything away for that, especially if the alternative is to be brutally persecuted. But as long as it's done in the sense of, hey, this guy has defeated the new world order uh, system and he has liberated Israel. And, you know, we have some kind of religiosity to sort of go along with it, then uh, it's a real danger. Anyway, I apologize. I didn't really go into like my arguments for the parallels between the six seals or anything like that. It's not really the center focus of what I want to do, but it is, you know, it's a, it's an important keystone to a lot of what will springboard from it. So if uh, I have been, uh, you know, maybe a little unfair to that position, or if you have something that suggests that nine through 14 in Matthew 24 is in fact a different thing from the abomination of desolation and the events that follow it. And that, that, uh, that 
15 and following is not more information on what was already discussed in 9 through 14. If you understand what I'm saying and you disagree with it and you have a good argument, not just a emotional appeal or anything like that, but a, a good textual biblical argument, please send it to me because I don't want to um, believe this or promote it if in fact it's wrong. Uh, but I, I feel even more strongly than I did before after doing the initial sort of research to make sure I wasn't uh, getting into a, something that was wrong and I feel that it is uh, validated. Uh, anyway, so that's it for today. Thank you for uh, checking out the website. Bible Prophecy Archive, by the way, has a new version of it. Bible Prophecy Archive, the ARC 2.0 is out. Uh, I only have one link on it right now, uh, but I got a new Bible bibliography so you can see what's new. Please check it out, BibleProphecyArchive.com. I will also send you one if the downloads are taking too long, since it is only one link right now. Uh, I will be happy to send you a, a DVD. I've been trying to get them out every, once every week, but sometimes I forget. So if I take a little bit of a long time, that's uh, on me, and I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get a new system for that and everything else. So anyway, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Bye.